A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I have with me Rich Rifle. Rich has 35 years experience in financial services at both Wall Street and regional firms. And he is a professor of finance practice at Washington University in St. Louis, amongst another a number of positions and roles you have within the school where we're going to be spending most of our time. So, Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. So maybe we're going to focus for the most part on your academic pursuits, but let's touch on the background, Wall Street, kind of your origin story and how you landed in academia. Yeah, I I once heard a person far wiser than myself uh, tell me that uh, careers always look organized uh, in the rearview mirror. They look perfectly ordered, but when you're going through it, not so much. So I'm actually trained as an engineer, have an MBA in finance, and I really wanted to work in finance after I got my MBA. I liked working with numbers, but I also liked working with clients. So that led me to being an investment banker, and I did that for a number of years, actually in an interesting sector called public finance. I did a lot of infrastructure financing of airports and parking garages and things like that. And then about uh, 12 years ago, I did a pivot into wealth management. Again, kind of similar themes, numbers and math and finance, but advising clients, this case, advising individuals. So I've enjoyed doing that. And somewhere along the way, I started teaching. I started by teaching one class, and then somebody else asked me to teach another class, and uh, a lot of synergies between my uh, different day jobs and teaching. So those are kind of my passions, working with people, educating them, whether they be students or clients. Yeah, always fun to have a fellow NESCAC alum on the show. I'm a Wesleyan guy, so is my wife and my brother. So there you go. So good to have you on. A proud Tufts jumbo. The jumbos, that's right. Excellent. So, you know, Zoning in on the work you're doing today, could you maybe expand on the very brief introduction I made in terms of you wear a lot of different hats, you have a relatively new role with an organization that was stood up recently to focus on family businesses, is that right? Yeah, so as a professor of practice at the university, I teach a number of different finance courses, but a few years ago, 
uh, a benefactor here in St. Louis, made a gift to the university to start the Koch Center for Family Enterprise. And the idea behind the gift in the center is to drive research into the practice of running family businesses. And for those that work with family businesses, certainly smaller ones, and many of them are smaller, you know, they're so busy running their business that it can be difficult to you know, find a best practice or research it. So the the vision of the Koch brothers, that different Koch brothers, local St. Louis Koch brothers that started this center, was that they would convene family business owners to get exchange best practices and to research to bring, you know, the way I describe it, in much the same way you would bring scientific research to the investment process, they're looking to bring science into the running of family businesses. And that area is really kind of almost an orphan in academics. When you think about it, most companies that are studied are public companies because the data is so much more available. And so it tends to be that family businesses kind of get short shrift. So they're looking to not only change that from an academic and a research standpoint, but then really elevate the game, if you will, of family businesses through the adoption of best practices. And that's exactly where I wanted to go with you. I've had a number of folks on the podcast who are in academic circles, and there's been a huge uptick in these family business, family-owned enterprise schools or workshops or initiatives or executive leadership positions. I know there's a big one in Stanford, Northwestern, you know, obviously you're at WashU. What is it about the current climate we're in that is bringing this to the fore, do you think? Yeah. Well, I... Two main thoughts come to mind there. One is if you think about it, there are fewer and fewer public companies. With the proliferation of capital, you know, the rate environment, the regulatory environment that would encourage companies to stay private longer and not go public, a number of significant public companies have been taken private. They're just more private companies, whether they're entirely family-owned or just private entities owned by a bunch of partners or by private equity. Certainly, there's a lot more private companies than there had been in the past, and they're private for longer. And the longer you stay private, you know, you have some more constraints as a private company, capital raising certainly being one of them, you know, competing for talent with public companies because of a lack of stock to use as a currency. There are a number of issues that come up with private companies. So that's one thing, proliferation of private companies. And then I think the other one is just there's a lot more entrepreneurial spirit out there now. And, you know, you can look at the, this probably tracks exactly to the point you're making, the number of entrepreneurship programs at colleges and universities and the number of incubators that there are to encourage, you know, both young people and more established people that are looking for a second turn to start companies. So I think those two things combine. And if you think about it, if your expertise is in running a public company, and I've worked in public companies, some of the biggest ones, and I've worked in family-owned business, they're radically different. They are, and until you've worked in both and compared, you might not think so, but they're different in the way they manage themselves and the way they compete and their goals. You know, there are a lot of, maybe we'll talk about this a little bit, you know, there's some what I call extra financial considerations that family businesses have that are not just surely shareholder return driven. So that those make them very different. So I think that's caused a lot of this demand for some of these programs and, and some more research and more best practices. Yeah, and it's encouraging to see. I think to your point, the the majority of folks in the general population view these publicly traded companies as stalwarts, you know, all blue chips. But the reality is there's quite a bit of turnover within that space, right? These companies come and go fairly quickly. 
Whereas, you know, there's a lot of multi-generational family businesses that have really stood the test of time. And it's good for them, I think, to have exposure. And for people going to business school to understand that they don't have to go to necessarily Wall Street or McKinsey, they could go to one of these firms and really learn quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think kind of the uh, the quintessential or the stereotypical student at a business school, maybe getting an MBA, you know, what do they want to do? They want to be a C-suite executive someday. They want to go into investment banking or they want to be a consultant. And one of the things that we do through the center is point out to students that there are some great careers in family-run businesses. So take a look at that. But then we also are educating the next gen of families that are running or going to run these businesses. And we have some pretty amazing. So if you look at the history of St. Louis in particular, and of course, we attract students from all over the United States and indeed around the world. So we're not just educating a a regional population. But if you look at the history of St. Louis, because it was the gateway to the West, there were a lot of really amazing old companies here that were sort of the base for the expansion westward. And they endure to this day. And they've survived for a very long time in the family. Some have been sold or gone public. Certainly some have uh, failed as well. But yeah, it is amazing the robust history of, of companies that survive for multiple generations, and even more so in Europe. Yeah, I mean, they have a whole different concept of time there when yes. it comes to multi-generational businesses, and there's a lot to be learned. So as part of this initiative that you're working on, I know investing is a big part of it. And I, you, this article that, you know, that's why I reached out to you was you had this great article in, in Family Business Magazine about working with these family-owned enterprises, these closely held businesses on thinking through their investment process or profile or protocols. What kind of urged you to write that article? Was it because of the feedback you were getting or something you just saw over and over again that needed to be addressed? Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting origin. So, you know, when I ran the private bank, JP Morgan private bank office here in St. Louis, I was working with the wealthiest families in the lower Midwest. We covered a a six-state region. So, you know, you're not talking about the merely wealthy. You're talking about very wealthy families. And generally, you make, you have that kind of wealth. You either inherit it, you earn it by starting a company and becoming part of the ownership society, or you're a very successful executive. Well, we worked with a lot of families. And so, frankly, Brian, when I wrote that article, I said, you know, maybe I need to bite my tongue a little bit because there's some fairly strong advice there. And so I'll, I'm going to meander a little bit here if you'll give me a little bit of leeway. You know, the, the top line of the article, I, I say, you know, you get rich through concentration, you stay rich through diversification. So I was constantly meeting families that were quite wealthy. They started a business or, you know, maybe their parents started a business and they were quite wealthy all already. And they viewed their company like one of their children. Matter of fact, you know, when you'd ask somebody to talk about their background, you know, they might first talk about their company and then talk about their children. I mean, they're really proud of of their company, as they should be. You know, it's their creation and it's no easy feat to start a business and then, you know, make a go of it over many years. And the knock on wealth management people is that they only show up when there's uh, a looming liquidity event. So they're always worried that, you know, the guy from the wealth management firm is going to say, what you ought to do is sell the business because then I can manage your assets. So, you know, I always tried to avoid that conversation. But in writing this article, you know, I tried to bring it back to some more of an empirical analysis. Again, just kind of thinking about it from a bit of an academic lens. It's not, you know, overly rigorous, but 
you know, the fact of the matter is you do get rich through concentration and you stay rich through diversification. So if you have a concentrated asset, you can think of your family-owned business as a very large private equity stake. And if I were constructing a portfolio for you using modern portfolio theory, I probably wouldn't tell you to put a lot of your wealth in one private equity investment. I would tell you to diversify. And that I, you know, there are different techniques for diversifying. One is to sell it outright. One is to try to pull a dividend out of it. One is to do a dividend recap, maybe sell minority pieces and whatnot. So there are ways to diversify. But generally, just having that conversation that you bring up that topic and then the family kind of shuts down and they don't want to talk to you because they just think, you know, you're the proverbial guy trying to sell them something. So I tried in the article to say, again, to say what they needed to hear, that notwithstanding your success in this business, statistically, the likelihood is that if you're going to stay rich, it's going to be through some diversification. So that doesn't mean you need to sell your business, but you need to be thinking really early in the life cycle of that company about how are you going to diversify, pulling money out of the business? You know, do you love the business so much that you want to keep all your money in it? Can you pull some of the money out for the sole purpose of diversifying? And then I get into, you know, a little bit about the odds are stacked against you because so many companies fail over time. Indeed, in the S&P 500 or the Russell 3000, the statistics are pretty bleak. So I talk about that. And then I talk about just this notion of skill, as many listeners will, you know, appreciate this notion of, you know, stock pickers don't really have skill if markets are efficient. So over time, even though you might be running a great company, you might have started a great company, and you may think you have skill running that company, and you may, there's mean reversion. So it's likely that skill is going to dissipate. And if that skill dissipates, then that's putting your concentrated asset at, at risk. So I spoke about that a little bit. And then you know, you just look at the sources of failure of businesses. It tends to be exogenous factors beyond the control of exceptional, well-educated, well-resourced managers. You know, it's some regulatory change or some global impact or a pandemic or, a, you know, a conflict in Europe or something like that. So I was just trying in this article to say, you know, that old adage is true. And, you know, you may be the exception to the rule, but you may not be. And if you really want to think about kind of dovetailing into other things that we deal with at the center, which is managing your investments and maintaining your legacy, you know, you have to have liquid wealth to do both of those two latter points. And your legacy may be having your name on the building of a really highly esteemed institution in the town that you live in, or it may be philanthropy. It may be teaching your kids about how to be great philanthropists and sending them off to do other things. So I'm just encouraging people to think about, is the business the end into itself, or is it a tool or a means to do these other things that are very important to the family? And I've talked to a lot of families who have contemplated liquidity events or gone through them, and it's always a question of, is now the right time? You, I'm not asking you to say, this is how you know it's the right time, but What's that process look like in your opinion? What are the questions to ask to understand the risk reward and to at least be informed as opposed to an investment maker coming in and saying, hey, I can put a bunch of zeros in your bank account. Big picture, how do you think best practices for doing that process? Yeah, there are a lot of factors that go into that. Even before I would talk about maximizing or what's the right price, I'd step back and I'd say something along the lines of, 
since this company is your baby, if you will, and the employees of this company are like an extended family, you know, let's think about culture. So how important is culture to you in maintaining the culture? Because you might find that, for example, selling to a strategic would maybe preserve more culture versus selling to a financial sponsor that's going to be, you know, for lack of a more elegant way of putting it, maybe a little bit more ruthless when it comes to cost cutting and things like that. So if culture and longevity of employees and that sort of thing is important to you, you know, let's look at what's going to give you the best cultural fit. And you may have to trade, you know, a couple of turns on the multiple to preserve that culture. Maybe not, but maybe so. So that's one, I'll say, it's a financial consideration, but it stems from a non-financial consideration. Maybe related to that would also be whether or not you wish to continue to be involved in the business or you have family that you want in the business. So there may be a way to sell, sell a stake in the company where you could stay involved either running it or as a consultant and your children could and whatnot. Indeed, you see some fairly prominent public companies that have major non-majority family ownership, but you know family members are still running the company. So that's another consideration. But how much do I sell my company for? Certainly when I was advising clients when I was in industry, I would try to get them to, to think about how much money they really needed. So let's think about like, there's, there's an old cliche in wealth management, you know, you ask, what's the money for? You know, like money in and of itself is nothing. Money is a tool to achieve something, your wants and needs. So I would try, encourage clients to try to come up with what is that number? And that number may be informed by a lot of things. It may be I want to retire. It may be I want to, you know, endow a scholarship or, it, you know, maybe I want to travel around the world. Come up with that, what that number is. And then when you think you can get that number, that's the time to think about selling your company. You may be able to get that number without selling your company through some other, you know, financing tools. So, you know, and then we would model it. So we would look at, okay, you know, here's, here's how much you could get today. That's not going to uh, get you where you want to be. So maybe we want to wait. I never kind of was from the school of thought like, well, m multiples are frothy. Let's sell it just to sell it because, you know, these are the salad days and it'll never be better than it is today. I always thought the money is there for a reason. So beyond that amount of money that meets all of your needs and wants, what's the purpose of selling it for more? And you might sacrifice some of those other, again, those extra financial things that I mentioned, like culture or family involvement and whatnot. And in your experience, is it helpful to have a non-family member around the kitchen table when those conversations are happening that they're working within the operating company or maybe they're a part of a standalone investment family office consigliere type role? Yeah. So generally speaking, I think when you make any decision in life, I don't care who you are, what your station is in life, I recommend having uh, a group around you that's giving you input that I, the way I describe it is, you know, they should have a different lived experience. So outside advisors can, but, you know, again, remember outside advisors may have their own agenda. So you might have, like you say, a trusted consigliere, you might have, you know, other family members that are in that role. But I think it's, and, you know, we've all seen stories and, you know, people will point to, you know, popular television with things like succession and all of that to look at like how bad things can get. Of course, that's fiction, but sometimes the truth is as strange as the fiction. 
So I think it's important to have outside professional advisors that are giving you legal and financial advice. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wealth managers that are doing that, potentially lifestyle coaches, you know, clergy, you know, all of those sorts of things, people that come at it from different angles so that you can synthesize that and make a good decision. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to excelsiorgp.com slash download to learn more. Same question on the investment side. And this article in particular, you talk about kind of home bias and how that can inform a lot of investments. Oftentimes, I've seen a fact pattern where multi-generational families, either pre or post liquidity event, there's like one of two things. One, they have this huge pension for only investing in the space that they know really well because they feel comfortable there. They feel like they've got inside information and, and a leg up. Or I've seen the opposite thing where they were in timber for generations. Now all of a sudden they want to be in multi-strat hedge funds or some esoteric product type. And I've kind of seen both things. What has your lived experience been when you're working with kind of in-house or non-family investing professionals? This is a great point. And, and since I don't work for a Wall Street wealth manager, I can say this with all objectivity. I, I would frequently run into families that I would be encouraging to diversify. And let's say they owned a metal bender and they were making some good money out of that and they had some liquidity on the side. And I'd say, well, we ought to diversify with that liquidity. You know, maybe we'll put you in a private equity fund or maybe just public market securities. And I might hear, well, we're going to start a little fund or we're part of a multifamily office that has a little fund and they're bringing us opportunities, you know, and we can do little bite sizes of, you know. $250,000 and get in, into uh, some of these other investments. And I would kind of scratch my head and think, you know, what makes you think, just like statistically, that a multifamily office that sees, you know, 50 deals a year is going to have more expertise than, you know, the largest financial institution in the United States? Like, let's just think about this rationally. Maybe you want to trust those decisions to a larger financial institution with more resources, more buying power, better access, et cetera. So that was one thing I would see. And then to your point, I would see both sides of that coin where somebody, you might have a metal bender and they say, well, I really know the metal bending space. So, you know, I've been, I've been 
bending metal for the last 50 years, so now I'm going to vertically integrate and I'm going to go into the scrap business. And, you know, what distinct competence do they have to go into the scrap business or what moats can they erect around the scrap business? You know, just because it's an adjacency, they think they're going to be successful. You know, you're excellent running uh, a metal bending business doesn't mean you're going to necessarily be able to bring that same skill to a an adjacent, you know, vertically integrated business. And then the flip side of that is like, all right, I'm in the metal bending business, so I have concentration to this industrial business. So I need to diversify. So I hear you, Rich. I need to diversify. I'm gonna like go and work with this incubator, and I'm gonna invest in tech startups. I'm like fintech is. I'm gonna go like buy a chat GPT startup or something like that. So you know, then you'd say, all right, you got the diversification piece right but you're confusing your skill running a metal bending business with your ability to pick, you know, who's going to win in this new space. Not impossible, but just, you know, it doesn't logically follow. And again, you know, that's why it was like with some peril when I wrote this article, I'm kind of saying, you know, things that maybe people don't want to hear, but I think you really need to bear these things in mind. Again, because of this old adage that I just think is, uh, you know, unrepealable. You get rich through concentration. You stay rich through diversification. We're going to pivot and start working towards this intergenerational wealth transfer we're seeing occur. But I want to segue it by a bridge question, which is, I agree with you, everything that you said. And do you think that mindset is different for next gens currently, as opposed to say the baby boomer generation within these family businesses today? You know, so that's an interesting question. I haven't thought about it that much, but I'll make a I'll make a generalization. And so, you know, I'm old-ish, but like my parents lived through the depression. So they were exceedingly conservative, debt averse. You know, if they had something that was working, you know, they were gonna just like guard that with their life. You know, I'm probably a little bit less risk averse. So I I do think the last generation, you know, you referred to them as baby boomers. You know, maybe they're a little bit more. Let's just stick with what we got. Let's guard this asset. The newer generation, whatever you want to call them, millennials or Zs or whatever, I think one challenge with them is they're almost too willing to fail. And I don't say that to say that failure is not a good, a good thing to go through. I think you learn from failure, you know, and the, the cliche about failing forward. And you certainly hear about, you know, hear about just Steve Jobs, kind of the quintessential failure who then, you know, made made a fortune reviving Apple. But I do think you need to be careful when advising, you know, this current younger generation that, you know, the stakes are pretty high when you have wealth and you're investing it in something that might fail. As a matter of fact, I just heard somebody, I was listening to a video that I'm going to be, that I recorded with a, an entrepreneur for one of my classes. And he said, you know, he was given some great advice when he was very young by Ross Perot, who came to speak at his class at Harvard Business School. And it was, you know, fail while you're young because the stakes are low, you know, so a lot easier now as a 20 something, you know, to go out and get a job with a tech company and have the tech company fold than it is when, you know, when you're 50 and you're taking, you know, your family's $10 million fortune and taking a flyer on something. So I, I think, some of willingness to take risk just correlates to age always because you have less to risk and more time to recover. 
But I do think culturally, as a society, we've gotten more willing. We've destigmatized failure, if you will. So I do think younger people are more willing to to fail and look at it as a a learning experience. Do you think that's a good thing? So I think in the macro sense, you know, you look at law of large numbers. I think that's what makes America the best country on the planet because we have so many people that are willing to take risks. Indeed, people want to come to America to take risks. And we have a system that encourages that in terms of the rule of law and our great capital markets. So I think in a macro sense, it's good. I think you have to take educated risks. And so I think if you take risks lightly and without doing your homework, you know, in a micro sense, that's not good. But all of those failures ultimately for all of the other market participants are good because everybody learns from somebody else's failure. It's, you know, you fail, you learn a lot, but everybody learns from that. Yeah. I had a friend at a top five business school and he had a similar kind of experience to what you alluded to, which is he had a professor who kind of looked around the room one day and said, listen, if I find out that you know the, most of you ended up working at XYZ Wall Street bullish bracket bank right out of the shot, I'll be pretty upset because you're at this prestigious place. You're obviously very smart, well-connected, resourced. You should go out and take a run at something. You can always go back to those places, right? And I think there's a lot to be said for that and within the right context, obviously. My own story, you know, you asked me earlier about my career, but when I was a senior in college, I worked part-time for IBM in a, actually in a product center where we sold PCs. And I remember there was a colleague there who, so I was going to Tufts. I had a colleague that was at some other university also working in the store. And when it came time to get a job, you know, I got a job with IBM and this person got a job with a small company that, you know, it was just starting, you know, called Microsoft. And I remember thinking, man, I got it made. I'm going to work for IBM. You know, it's a great company. They're going to train me. And this person's going to Microsoft, kind of taking a flyer. That person probably worked for 10 more years and has been retired for 30. And, you know, here I am, you know. So yeah. I'm kind of a living example of take the risk when you're young. And like you say, you can always, you can always go back. And is that part of the education component or experience component that you're helping to bring to these family businesses through the the center the work you're doing yeah we don't we don't if you're asking you know specifically about like risk taking and risk mitigation you know we don't presume to know their businesses well enough and their risk tolerance you know we're think about it this way we're you know you can use the word science to describe this but just you know think about a company that is small you know started you know to typically, you know, a lot of these companies are started by men. So let's say, you know, 50 years ago, dad started a company and now that, you know, the son is coming through college and is going to do something. You know, what we try to do is educate the student to just say, you know, what are some things that in terms of science that maybe didn't exist 50 years ago? And your dad's been so busy running the company that you haven't, he hasn't been able to think about a lot of these things. So maybe there are more modern techniques. And again, we're educating students from all over the world as well. So, you know, it's more, it's more to make sure people are aware of things. You know, there, again, there might be governance issues that families haven't thought about. Indeed, you know, a lot of 
privately held companies don't have outside directors. You know, so do you want to have outside directors? What's the benefit to them? How do you select them? You know, how do you compensate them? That might be one example. You know, how do you attract talent? You know, when you're a small company, you know, again, back to my stereotypical, you know, when dad was running it, it might have been, you know, was in business with his brother and maybe had some family, other family members or friends or, you know, people he met in the service or in college or whatever. And, you know, bringing, I don't want to imply that they're not well run. That is not what I'm saying. But, you know, just bringing more modern techniques, if you will, and techniques that are rooted in in, in data so you could prove out that over a large sample size, they're going to they're going to work. That that sort of scientific rigor, if you will, or common experience from other companies will oftentimes give companies more confidence in doing something differently. You know, it's the proverbial, well, this is always the way we've always done it. Well, you know, it would be like, you know, I think of like when Tiger Woods changed his swing. The guy was already an amazing golfer. And then, you know, he gets a new coach and the new coach says, you know, you got to stop swinging that club 180 degrees differently now than the way you have been, you know, when your when your dad taught you. We're going to undo your swing. We're going to teach you a new one. And the temptation would be to say, well, th- this is working for me. Why would I change it? But, you know, a good coach is going to come in and say, well, let, let's look at all these empirical reasons or other examples and case studies why this swing works better. And that's really the purpose of an education is just to show you that there might be different ways to do things, not saying one way is right or wrong, just different. What's been the biggest surprise for you working within this organization or interacting with some of these family businesses? Yeah, I I had some data that I referenced in the in that article that, you know, there's some misperceptions about how hard it is. I think a lot of people think, I didn't necessarily think this because I I didn't start a family business. I've never started a business. I've always worked for a company. Again, back to my risk aversion. But I think a lot of people from the outside look at a family business and think it's somehow easy. They think that all family businesses are lifestyle businesses. You know, no one's working too hard. They're making great money. They kind of run themselves. You know, the founders on the golf course. The opposite is true. When you look at the number of challenges that not only family businesses, that, but small businesses have, and it's only getting worse. And again, this is to the point of my article, like it's getting harder to run smaller enterprises and privately held enterprises. Okay. I mean, the, like the number one thing that comes to mind is scale. So just think about how hard it is to compete against scale players, you know, the pandemic. This is a class, a, a, a classic uh, case study in scale. During the pandemic, if you had scale, you had power over suppliers. So we had massive supply chain issues. So if you were a small player, a small grocery store versus a big grocery store, a, a small anything compared to a big, you know, national chain or national company, trying to get supplies from vendors, you know, who are they going to take care of? They're going to take care of the biggest customers first. So scale in terms of supply chain is a big issue. Scale in terms of amortizing the cost of marketing if you're a B2C company, or increasingly, where I see this, given my background of financial services, scale when it comes to regulatory and compliance and cybersecurity. 
you know, you've got massive national financial service players that are spending literally billions of dollars on their website and their cybersecurity. Now, to the credit of a lot of entrepreneurs, they've created startups that allow small companies to basically buy scale by working with a vendor, but it's still not the same. And when you're a small player and you try to access scale through a vendor, you have a lot of risk there. You know, that vendor could fail, there could be operational issues, there could be cultural issues. But when you're a big scale player, you know, think, you know, Ford Motor Company or, you know, JP Morgan or Walmart, you know, you can control everything and you can be patient. And, you know, you can be as patient as your shareholders will let you be, I suppose. But so that's an issue. And then financing is an issue. You know, you're limited as a private company as to your ability to access capital. That's gotten a little better given the proliferation of all the dried powder in the market, but it's still, it's still challenging. Yeah, definitely an interesting time because this dynamic of low barrier to entry given technology, right? People can literally start a business in under an hour, right? Form an LLC, start something that's cheap and easy. And I agree with you. I I think the pressure of competition, given how open the marketplace is, is really challenging for almost any professional financial services manufacturing firm. So- We're glad to have resources like you in the market to help people navigate through this. It's not easy to run any business, but, you know, running a small family business, uh, particularly challenging. And, you know, we haven't really talked about the family dynamic issues, which, you know, some companies run into that. Some families have that where there's tension or there's, you know, Gen 1 doesn't want to let go for Gen 2 to take over. And those just complicate things. That's, you know, that's sort of office politics squared. You know, office politics is one thing, but, you know, when it's family and it's around the dinner table, you know, that's a much different challenge. Yeah, it's a whole nother ball of wax. Rich, I want to thank you so much for coming on. You know, really appreciate the advice you're given, the resources you're providing, the work you're doing. If people are interested in connecting with you and or learning more about the school and the initiative that you're starting, what's the best way for them to find out more? Well, the easiest way to get is is to get in touch with me directly. My email address is rifle, my last name, R-Y-F-E-L, at W-U-S-T-L dot E-D-U, washustlouis.edu, or you can Google Koch Center for Family Enterprise at Washington University in St. Louis. And we'll be, be sure to provide all that information on the show notes. One question we ask everyone that comes on the show, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? I'm a bit of a runner, so I try to get up and run. I, but I'm a runner with a bit of an obsession for the markets, so I run with people that are in the profession, and we talk markets while we run. So I get a little bit of fresh air, a little bit of health, and a little bit of education as well. So I like that, stacking things on top of each other. It's, I love uh, it. It's, it's synergy, yeah. yeah. It allows me to great. do two things at once. So. Oh. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Please do, everyone listening, leave a comment, leave a review, let us know your favorite part of the conversation and definitely encourage you to connect with Rich and the school and, and all the good things they're doing and best of luck moving forward. Thanks so much, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.